A North Carolina lieutenant in the 2nd North Carolina Regiment of State Troops wrote shortly after the Battle of Chancellorsville to his brother that we paid dearly for our victory. That quotation can sum up pretty much any battle in the Civil War, whether you're the victor or the defeated. We paid dearly for our victory. The Battle of Chancellorsville was, in the words of one Confederate soldier, the hardest fight I ever witnessed in my life and hope we'll never see another such. On today's episode of Campfire Chatter, it is May 5th, 2019 and we've just culminated the anniversary of the Battle of Chancellorsville so I thought I'd talk today about the battle about Stephen Dodson Ramsor's North Carolina Brigade at the Battle of Chancellorsville and how terrain affected the brigade in their attack at on May 3rd 1863. So just that being the case I want to illustrate how terrain around the area of Fairview Heights on May 3rd affected Ramsor's brigade and how they paid dearly for their victory and taking the position. Terrain features figure prominently throughout military history, of course. The Civil War is no different. Firearms and artillery made terrain even more important in strategy, as well as to the experiences of the men involved. Hills, woods, rivers, other features, topographical features, affected the way commanders positioned their troops, artillery, and how they maneuvered on the battlefield. The Battle of Chancellorsville, which happened May 1st through 3rd, 1863, demonstrates how heavily wooded terrain can nullify certain advantages, namely artillery during the Civil War, can also conceal troop movement as well as obstruct vision from the attacker and the defender. And in the midst of combat in such situations in wooded terrain like that, communication becomes a problem as well. Commanders can't see their troops as well in dark and thick woods, and commands cannot be heard as well, and the Battle of Chancellorsville was no different in how that of the terrain and that communication issues affected the men in the Brigade of Stephen Dodson Ramsers, North Carolina men, is illustrative of that. It's an illustrative example of the difficulties of terrain that even veteran infantry units in the Civil War faced. The historiography covering the Battle of Chancellorsville surprisingly is very limited. The actual battle in its campaign is very limited. One Union veteran wrote, which is still can't be discounted as a very excellent one-volume treatise of the Battle of the Battle of Chancellorsville by John Bigelow, who was an artillery Union artilleryman. Um, also, Stephen W. Sears has written arguably the best one-volume book on the campaign, and another one by Ernst Ferguson. Um, there's a new book out, relatively new, by Chris Mikowski about the Battle of Second Fredericksburg and Salem Church, which is where... Jubal Early's detached division was, and then they were attacked by John Sedgwick's 40,000-man 6th Corps. Most historians, though, most military historians as well, agree that Chancellorsville was Lee's masterpiece. Some historians, like Alan Nolan, who wrote a revisionist account of Lee, basically, one could say a hack job, trying to take Lee down a peg. Um, But he did have a good argument saying that Lee was wasteful, in his aggressive tactics and took too many chances with the Confederacy's limited manpower. And that's not a new argument. Um, Some historians have argued that as well. And you can argue that case to a degree, but also in terms of the Battle of Chancellorsville and some of his other battles, Lee had to take risks. He couldn't just sit back and let the federal armies dictate to him the course of the campaign. And that's exactly what happened at Chancellorsville, May, the end of April and early May. Hooker, Joseph Hooker, Union General Joseph Hooker, crossed the Rapidan, Rappahannock Rivers, 
on Lee's left flank and basically moved him, forced him to evacuate his strong position around Fredericksburg. But once confronted, Hooker lost his nerve, gave the initiative back to Lee, and Lee, Lee was a master at sensing that and immediately responding to that. And the rest is history, as they say. So I'm going to give a little bit of background context to the battle, how it affected um, Ramser's men, and also try to give a lot of good quotes about from the men of Ramser's Brigade about the battle and how the terrain affected them and their performance. The spring campaign of 1863 began with the Army of the Potomac on the march, as I mentioned. And on April 29th, Ramser's Brigade was stationed around Massaponax Creek on picket duty. Um, they were basically trying to contest any attempts at crossing the Rappahannock River by federal infantry south of Fredericksburg. On f- early Friday morning, May 1st, Ramser's Brigade and the rest of Robert E. Rhodes' division were woken up, fell in, and began to march westward towards Chancellorsville. Lee had been alerted to Hooker's movement, had made contact on the far left, and was now moving forces westward to meet Hooker in the wilderness. By daylight on May 1st, Ramser's Brigade had reached the Plank Road after moving pro- marching about 12 miles. They resumed their march for another two miles, and then they were ordered out of the road on towards their right because part of Lee's Army, Richard Anderson's division, had become engaged with Federal infantry. So the sharpshooters of Ramser's Brigade were sent out, drove the Federals back along with some other elements of the brigade, and then they established a picket post, slept on their arms, and tried to get some sleep. They were very close to Federal infantry, however, in the darkened woods. So this location where they were was on the eastern part of a large wooded area known as the Wilderness, which fighting would happen there again in May 1864. But this was a very thickly dense undergrowth, tangled vines, trees, shrubbery, kind of woodlot that basically would nullify the advantages of artillery to a 19th century army. So by attacking Hooker along the plank road on May 1st, Lee regained the initiative from Hooker. Hooker halted his advance, which had been successful that far, and consolidated his forces around the Chancellor House and began to dig in. His right flank, which was the Union 11th Corps, their flank was wide open. They were not supported either, so they were wide open. So on Saturday, May 2nd, by Saturday, May 2nd, Lee and Stonewall Jackson had come up with a plan had found that the 11th Corps' flank was in the air and that Jackson proposed to attack the flank and rear of Hooker's army with his whole corps, about 25,000 men, leaving Lee with maybe 15 to 20,000 of his own to confront about 100,000 Federals. So where terrain comes into this, I mentioned the dense woods, Jackson's corps wasn't completely unnoticed marching through the woods, but they used the woods and the terrain to their advantage because you could be concealed more. But they weren't unnoticed completely, but they were mis- Union officers misrepresented what was going on. They believed that Jackson was retreating. Instead, he was going on a 12-mile roundabout flank march and landed squarely on the Federal right flank. plan of attack was for three divisions of Jackson's Corps to form in three lines. Robert E. Rhodes' division, of which Stephen Ramser's brigade was a part, formed the first line, and Ramser's brigade was in the division's second line. So in Civil War, infantry tactics, most regiments, brigades, divisions always had somebody in support of the front line. Another brigade or another regiment was always in support of the front line. So Ramser's brigade 
was in the division's second line, and they were ordered to support Alfred Colquitt's Georgia Brigade, which was on the right of Rhodes' division. So this advance began around 5 o'clock p.m. Again, Federal infantry were completely unaware. Some of the pickets were alerted to the fact that there was some movement going on in the woods. Some of the officers were aware that something was going on, but no one took the proper precautions on the Union side to do anything about this. So around 5 p.m. on May 2nd, 1863, the terrain which had helped conceal the movement of this large force also presented an obstacle to them. William Carter was a lieutenant in the 2nd North Carolina Regiment, part of Ramsar's brigade, and he described the terrain that they were passing through as marshy with, quote, an impenetrable growth of pine and scrub oak. But nevertheless, around 5 o'clock, the Confederate attack occurred, completely surprised the Federals who, in the 11th Corps, who fled in confusion and panic. Captain John C. Gorman of the 2nd North Carolina, also of the 2nd North Carolina, wrote home after the battle describing this attack as, quote, our first onslaught was terrific. With wild cheers, we rushed madly on. Another lieutenant, another officer, however, in the 2nd North Carolina also wrote that they drove everything before us like chaff. So this attack completely routed the Union 11th Corps from the field, as well as took away some elements of uh, the 2nd and 12th Corps as well. Ramster's brigade did not participate heavily in this flank attack. Alfred Colquitt, who they were supporting, believed that Federal cavalry were threatening his right flank, which was kind of in the open, and he started his units started to veer right to investigate this this report. Hindsight being what it is, we could see why in the heck would Federal cavalry be in the middle of the woods, nowhere near the infantry, threatening Colquitt's flank. But I digress. So Colquitt veered that way to investigate what was going on. Ramser naturally had to follow him because he was ordered to support him. And, of course, this alarm was false. So Ramser's brigade and Colquitt spent the night in some captured 11th Corps breastworks. So by using, as I mentioned, using this dense woods as cover, Lee was able to maneuver a large part of his army completely around Hooker's right flank, largely undetected. It was very bold, and it was a great use of terrain, effective use of terrain, which Lee was one of the masters of. So that's May 2nd, and one of Lee's colonels, one of Ramster's colonels, Risden Tyler Bennett, who commanded the 14th North Carolina Regiment, concurred with that assessment that terrain helped give them an edge, writing that, quote, the heavy woodland through which the route lay concealed our development, and this concealment was a large key to the success of the flank attack. So during the night, federal troops were cutting down trees. They were fortifying themselves as best they could. They realized that there's a significant Confederate force on their flank now, now in their front, as they had to shift their lines. And they started creating several lines of breastworks. Now, one of the terrain features at the battlefield of Chancellorsville, which you can still view, is called Fairview Heights. It's very near the Chancellor's house, which Hooker used as his headquarters. So this was slightly open ground, the Fairview, and it also Hooker organized a large artillery position. There's between 40 and 50 and 40 and 60 artillery pieces on this ridge, and there were several lines in, of Union infantry supporting them. Captain Gorman described this first Federal line as being in dense thickets of pine and scrub oak. So you're starting to, again, it's constantly this thick undergrowth of trees and tangled stuff that's constantly in the way. So at the edge of the woods below the gun line at Fairview Heights was another line of works that Union infantry were occupying that Gorman described as, on the high heels 
On the high hills in the open fields, some 250 yards further in their rear, along the center of their line, they had erected redoubts for 64 pieces of artillery. So he describes what's immediately in front of the artillery as well as the artillery position itself. And a member in the 4th North Carolina, obviously uh, uh, also of Ramsar's Brigade, confirmed this description, writing a little bit more about the terrain that they would have to advance through, describing that their brigade would have to advance through thick saplings and underbrush, underbrush that gently descended to a brook with the ridge Fairview being occupied by federal artillery. So this brook is still noticeable today at the Chancellorsville Battlefield Park. I have traversed the area where Ramsar's Brigade advanced on May 3rd to Fairview. There's no trails through there. It's just still densely wooded area. But going in the winter when, the, when it's not as bad, you can see this brook still kind of little stream down at the base of the ridge of Fairview, right before you exit the woods and see the guns that are still there on the ridge of Fairview. So you can kind of, you really get a sense of what Ramsar's Brigade, the men had to go through to get to take those guns. So May 3rd would prove to be a very difficult day for Ramsar's Brigade. It was kind of their turning point during the war. And for many of the men, it would be their last day on earth. So, And as I mentioned, they were largely unbloodied on May 2nd. So on May 3rd, Ramster had about 1,300, give or take, men in the ranks. And by May 3rd, Rhodes' division was in the third line. They were put in reserve to rest and recuperate. And then they were ordered to advance on May 3rd. So Ramster's brigade was aligned perpendicular to the plank road, which was going east-west. And the 4th North Carolina was adjacent to the road, its left flank connected to the road. Next, on the right of the 4th, was the 2nd North Carolina. And then the 14th North Carolina was on the right, the 2nd. The final regiment in the brigade, the 30th North Carolina, was supporting Confederate artillery and was detached at Hazel Grove, which was to their right rear. It was a commanding open position of high ground the Confederates used with their artillery to help drive some of the guns from Fairview off, so it was kind of an artillery duel going there. So Ramster ordered that the three regiments that he had with him on hand would advance in echelon. So an echelon formation in advance means that once one unit starts, the next one beside it, is their advance is delayed. So it's kind of like a step effect that you, you're constantly having troops advance in attacking your, the enemy. So it was a common Civil War tactic. After conversing with the colonel of the 4th North Carolina, Ramster then approached the left flank of the 2nd North Carolina and shouted, Forward 2nd. The three left-hand companies of the 2nd Regiment advanced with the 4th Regiment. Again, this is when I mentioned communication would become an issue in densely wooded terrain. This is when this started to happen for Ramster's men. So the men advanced into the heavy timber and undergrowth. The trees became just as deadly as the bullets and the artillery shells that began to rain on them. Once artillery starts crashing into a dense woodlot, explosions happen, trees start to fall, they can kill, injure, wound just as badly as musket balls or artillery shells. So tree, tree limbs came crashing down on the heads of the men while the artillery shells exploded in the treetops. The colonel of the 14th North Carolina related this after the battle, writing that nature herself took part in the tumult. Exploding missiles broke off the overhead limbs of trees and discharged them in great loads upon those who, in search of cover, crouched at their roots. The three regiments, 2nd, the 4th, 2nd, and 14th, 
reached the abandoned line, the first line of federal works, and stopped. Other Confederate troops were kind of huddled in these works, but were not advancing. They were ordered to advance, but they would not advance because of the severity of the fire coming at them. So many of the accounts claim that these men who were not fighting were of the famous Stonewall Brigade, Stonewall Jackson's first command. Ramsor ordered them to advance, and they would not. And this began a little bit of a controversy immediately after the battle between the commander of the Stonewall Brigade and Ramsor, but the evidence points to that it was maybe a few men of the Stonewall Brigade, but it was more likely John R. Jones's brigade of Virginians instead of the Stonewall Brigade. Nevertheless, they ultimately had to walk over these men because they would not advance, and this was confirmed by Brian Grimes, who was the Colonel of the Fourth, several other officers in the regiment, and the brigade as a whole. So there's multiple accounts suggesting this. The advance was resumed by the 4th North Carolina and a large portion of the 2nd. Several of the companies of the 2nd North Carolina did not advance because they did not hear the order to advance. And thus the right, same thing happened with the 14th North Carolina. Did not hear this. They were 200 yards in rear of the rest of the brigade. This resulted in the majority of the 2nd and 4th North Carolina being exposed to flank fire on their right flank because their supporting elements did not come up with them, and they suffered heavily because of this. Matthew Manley of the 2nd North Carolina wrote that as they drove the Federals down a hill near their artillery, they the artillery had, quote, full play on us at 200 yards. So they were the artillery was shooting anti-personnel missiles at them, creating havoc and heavy casualties among the troops. This area was likely that branch at the base of Fairview that I mentioned earlier. So being so far in advance, the 2nd and the 4th regiments were pretty isolated, and they kept getting flanking fire from counterattacking Union infantry, which were being fed in piecemeal trying to stop this massive Confederate assault, which Ramster's Brigade was a part of. As I mentioned, the 2nd North Carolina was hit very hard on their right flank. For example, one of the companies had 23 officers and men go into the fight, and every single one of them except for two, became a casualty as a result of this attack. So while this was going on, the 30th North Carolina, which had been detached, came to the rescue to fill in and attack these Union troops that were pummeling the right flank of the brigade, and they helped drive them off. Now the brigade was reunited, 4th, 2nd, 14th, and now 30th North Carolina. And this federal artillery on Fairview, this large conglomerate of federal artillery, continued devastating the ranks of Ramsar's North Carolinians. Again, this is terrain. You got high ground at Fairview. You have 40 to 60 cannons firing relatively downhill into a wooded area where they know Confederate troops are coming. They're using the, the environment, the natural environment, the trees also as weapons against them along with the artillery. So just an example of it, William Ardry, he was a private in the 30th North Carolina, had some excellent descriptions of his, in his diary and he described this artillery fire as they showed us with grape canister, and our men fell thick and fast. A semi-literate member of their same regiment wrote his wife that we were ordered to make a charge upon their battery, and it was an awful time. The Yankees opened fire on us with canister and grape shot, and I tell you, it did slay our men rapidly. The constant pressure of Confederate attacks gradually forced the Union infantry and some of their artillery to retreat. Confederate and Union dead were everywhere. The battle continued to rage on, but Ramser's men had done their job. They had taken Fairview and captured some artillery pieces, driven off the Union artillery and many of the infantry, 
and that helped turn the tide of the battle. I'm not saying that they did it single-handedly because they were joined in conjunction with other brigades, such as the Stonewall Brigade, some Georgians, Alabamians, other North Carolinians in that attack. But their attack on Fairview really turned the tide of the battle on May 3rd. And as I mentioned, the brigade went into action at the battle with 129 officers and 1,380 men. By the end of May, their May 3rd attack, 788 were casualties. So that's over 50% of the brigade was lost on May 3rd. As the 2nd North Carolina began to reform in the rear later in the afternoon, they had been, the brigade had been withdrawn, put in reserve. Such heavy casualties, they needed to re-rest and recuperate. Ramser approached the regiment and he asked, is this all that is left of the 2nd? And multiple accounts indicate that he broke into tears and, quote, and according to one officer, wept like a child on seeing the shattered remnants of the Noble Brigade, whose ranks were full 15 minutes before. And this soldier wrote a couple days after the battle, so it's not doesn't have the benefit of hindsight. One member of the 4th North Carolina wrote, This was the hardest fight I ever witnessed in my life, and I hope I'll never see such another. And an officer in the 2nd Regiment wrote that we paid dearly for our victory. And indeed, Ramster's Brigade did, losing over 50% of the brigade in one one day. But the terrain is what I wanted to focus on as well, the terrain of Chancellorsville. It contributed considerably to Confederate victory. We see it with the concealment in the woods, the thick undergrowth, hiding the numbers of troops, hiding the troops in general. You see terrain like Fairview, Hazel Grove, high ground ridges that are open, the only place you can use artillery, and how they not only benefited the Confederates, but they benefited the Federals. You look at the Federals' artillery position on Fairview and the amount of damage it created among Ramser's men because of that high ground and firing into the trees, almost point blank in some cases. But also the terrain caused some confusion when it's densely wooded and thick among the commanders of Ramser's brigade. Like I mentioned, part of the 2nd and the 14th did not advance with the 4th and the 2nd Regiment when they were all ordered to go in. They lagged behind several hundred yards, and that created an opening for Union infantry as they got fed into the battle to hit them in the flank, along with all that artillery firing at them. So you can see why heavy casualties would result as a result of terrain. High ground, artillery, dug-in infantry, as well as communication problems. They did not, Ramsar's Brigade did not have any terrain advantages in their attack on May 3rd. They were exposed the entire time to infantry and artillery fire. So it was remarkable when you consider this in their, and also consider the extreme casualties, that they were still able to penetrate the Union line at Fairview and help take that extremely important position of the Federal line. And as I mentioned earlier on in the episode, the same exact terrain features for the most part, and the same wilderness would affect the two armies again almost a year to the day in 1864 during the Battle of the Wilderness. Lee knew about the terrain in the area, knew that he was outgunned by Grant's Union artillery, and used the same terrain to his advantage to nullify his enemy's superiority in artillery by using wooded terrain to do that. So the Battle of Chancellorsville was a major Confederate victory. Both wings of Lee's army were reunited once they took Fairview and the Chancellor House and swept the Union Army before them, almost to, back to the river where they dug in. But 
the Confederates were still outnumbered, had suffered heavy casualties as well, and were not able to attack again before Hooker pulled back the Army of the Potomac across the river and beat a retreat back towards Fredericksburg. On the next episode of Campfire Chatter, I hope to be able to sit with Charlie Knight. He is the curator of the Military History Collection at the North Carolina Museum of History in Raleigh, North Carolina. He is also the author of the book on the Battle of New Market that's recently come out in the last 10 years. And he's also currently working on a biography of Confederate General William Mahone. So keep an eye out for that interview on the next episode of Campfire Chatter.